Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. There's still no better way to fall in love with San Francisco than to arrive by ferry, gliding towards the city's jumble of towers and hills. And there, as you disembark, you're greeted by the gorgeous, timeless ferry building, clock tower rising invitingly into the sky. In John King's new book, Portal, San Francisco's Ferry Building and the Reinvention of American Cities, the San Francisco Chronicle critic uses the ferry building to tell the story of this place. It's a resilient city, one that's always struggled to balance past and future, but that always manages to reinvent itself out here on the edge of the continent. Surely we've got another life left, right? That's all coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. One thing about San Francisco urban history, it's new. This isn't Istanbul. Take the long view. And this city's first 175 years are just an opening chapter. That's the feeling that John King's new book, Portal, San Francisco's Ferry Building and the Reinvention of American Cities gave to me. In this book, the ferry building acts as a point of orientation, a way of seeing the different periods of Bay Area history, a way of noticing paths not taken, a way of watching time's burdens and gifts accumulate. And because King sweeps across this history so deftly, reminding us that the way we got here was most certainly not inevitable, but shaped by so many visions and unforeseeable changes, you cannot help but feel invigorated. We need that sense of possibility at a time when nearly everyone I talk to feels stuck in the challenges of urban life right now and or flummoxed by the climactic changes coming to our waterfront door. We're delighted to welcome you to the show, John King. Thank you for this book. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So for listeners who have not been to the Ferry Building, who may exist, <laughs> can you just describe what it looks like through your sort of urban design critic eyes? Okay. Real simply, San Francisco and the San Francisco Bay Area are defined by the bay. The city of San Francisco, in terms of its layout, is defined primarily by Market Street in terms of built interventions on the landscape. Market Street and the Bay meet at the Ferry Building. It is in a long, 600-foot-long building, 250-foot clock tower, and it was built as a depot, but not a train depot, but a ferry depot. And Essentially, it is extremely visible in all directions. It's nowhere near the tallest building in San Francisco. It never was. But the fact that it's several blocks away from anything else on the water at the end of this big, wide street gives it a real visual prominence. Mm. So 
Initially, it was the most important building in San Francisco. Then it was a total relic that nobody knew what to do with, but you couldn't just tear it down, although there were proposals to. And then it was reborn in the early 20s, where um, the early 20th century, <laughs> where the transit aspect is it's fairly there, it's, but it's minimized. It's atmospheric. <laughs> but the building itself really kind of captures a certain. 21st century view of San Francisco among certain San Franciscans and Northern Californians, this kind of, it's old, but it's artisanal, mm. but it's also cutting edge, this, that, and the other mm. thing. So why was it the most important building in San Francisco? Before the Golden Gate Bridge and the Bay Bridge were built, unless you were coming up the peninsula, the only way to get into what was one of the 10 largest cities in the country was to come over the water. So the ferry building was... Ex the essential building to get people into the city when there were no bridges, there were no cars. It was the end of the continent. Mm -hmm. You know, all the train lines coming from New York ended up there. You know, um, I think the number that's in the book and is about 50 million people came via ferry, right? Yeah, that's that's the real, the casual figure everyone uses. Uh -huh. I think the... The highest one I was able to find, like in a note in a report at the time, was forty-seven million. Uh -huh. But those early twentieth-century reports are so right. kind of haphazard that yeah. I think fifty million makes sense as a round off. And people also love to say, right, that it was the busiest ferry crossing in the world, right, and one of the oh. busiest transportation hubs outside of London. Supposedly, only London's Charing Cross station equaled it for foot traffic in and out. And then the other thing is. Again, this is going back to when it was conceived. All the surface road or, or all the surface transit in San Francisco, the cable cars, the streetcars, they all ended up at the ferry building. Mm. So it was this incredibly, con it's hard to picture now, incredibly congested, confused thing with streetcars coming in from the west. It was in the middle of a very busy working industrial port, so you had freight movements, including a freight railroad going north <laughs> and south on the Embarcadero. And then you had millions of commuters being disgorged from this building, rushing to get to work. Man. And then, yeah, of course, like on the East Bay side too, right, all points were sort of pointed towards San Francisco uh, to the ferries. Yes, the kind of home. thing we forget now is, you know, okay, there were ferries coming into San Francisco. The ferry gates weren't like today where it's a little gate at the edge of the water. The Oakland Mole extended like three miles into the bay. <laughs> it's basically the footprint of what is the first stretch of the East Span before it really ascends. Berkeley's car pier went out. And, and as time went on, there were more and more car ferries as well that didn't pull directly into the building, but they pulled directly to north and south. So then you were also disgorging all these wow. private automobiles. Wow. Um, but, of course, it wasn't just the sort of functional importance of the ferry building that makes it what it what it is. Mm -hmm. It was also its kind of iconic status, right? And you, you trace that through uh, – I love this nifty bit of reporting. You trace it through the postcards from a postcard <laughs> company, right? If the book was 500 pages, there would be a lot more on postcards. <laughs> uh, yeah, it. that's one of the things that fascinated me. I, I've been writing about – buildings and architecture all my life as a reporter and journalist. And 
I was just so fascinated at how many things this building assembled, but also it was built from the start to be an icon. It was intended not just to be an efficient train terminal, but to be a visual symbol of San Francisco. And so that was the key from day one. It's incredible that it worked, though, right? <laughs> I mean, like, so many so many times people want to create something iconic, yes. but it doesn't become an icon in this case. I think that's really true, and that works into the whole tendencies of the time. It's interesting. State voters had to approve the building because it was— the port of San Francisco at the time was a state-owned port, so this expenditure to build a major project in the state-owned port had to be statewide approved. It won statewide by 850 votes. Wow. <laughs> because it was seen as a giveaway to Southern Pacific Railroad, which was the main tenant. Um, you know, so it was one of these things where that kind of constrained the budget a bit. One of the problems with architecture is that you can do the good moves right, but then mess them up. Hmm. And it's almost like the budget was good enough. The budget was enough to do the really good moves by a really good architect, A. Page Brown, but not enough to let the architect or anyone get out of hand. So it, when you really look close at the hmm. building, it's dignified rather than ostentatious. But the big moves are so memorable. We're talking with urban design critic John King about his new book, Portal, San Francisco's Ferry Building and the Reinvention of American Cities. Love to hear from you. What does the ferry building mean for you? What questions do you have about its construction, operation, history? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org. Of course, you can find us in our digital community. Go to kqed.org slash forum to find that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the the construction hmm. of the ferry building because it is, you know, I hadn't really thought about it, but it's kind of perched over the water, right? I mean, necessarily, yes. ferries have to get there. So um, talk to us about what's underneath the ferry building. What's underneath the building is... I think about 5,900, I forget the number this morning, but about 5,500, 5,700 trunks of Oregon trees. Hmm. And I think it's pine or something. Yeah. They were all stripped in Oregon, you know, farmed up there near Coos Bay, hmm. put onto the world's biggest monster raft, <laughs> to quote the examiner. It took weeks to get it into the ocean because the weight was so heavy and the sandbars, they had to catch the highest possible tide, went out into the ocean, a big storm hit, they all floated off to wherever. Uh, maybe now there are bars in Osaka or something uh, yeah. like that. Um, and yeah, so basically you've got, they did eventually get the wood down there. Yeah. And so you've got all this wood piled up. Then just before the wood would be exposed to the water, you've got big concrete pieces sitting on top of each one that are then combined to form arches. So it's it's like a catacombs beneath it. And the reason it's worked all this time is the wood is never exposed to air. It's always in the mud, in soggy mud. So it's it's like kind of frozen in time. And then you've got this mammoth, basically you've got a table with 5,500 legs and then these kind of catacombs interconnected and then you just lay this immense thing of concrete on top of it. 
I mean, um, I'm no structural engineer. That <laughs> sounds. Neither it, am I. It it sounds um, improbable that it would work as well as it has. Has when we look at it with mm -hmm. modern uh, engineering tools, is it still kind of a good idea? It keeps getting re-examined because the more you know about structures, there's more of a, can it really work this well? Yeah. But, you know, like before the restoration, uh, before the reopening in 2003, there was a huge set of studies done. And it was like, this really works well. The only thing, I describe it briefly in the book because I could not figure it out. And I talked to structural engineers who couldn't figure it out. And I had them read it is that the BART tunnel tunnels through uh -huh. hundreds of the logs. In the 60s, BART built like kind of a steel frame. I don't know how they did it. And then when the steel frame was built there to support the foundation above it, they just plowed through the logs. So that seems to be the troublesome place, except huh. no findings show that it really is. Uh, but now, because of climate change concerns, there's a whole new set of studies being uh, done. Like, is this really as good as it seems? But yeah. so far, it is. Which we will get to for sure in this show. And if you want to know that that BART tunnel building is actually like on the back of uh, of the fair building, it's it's right there. The ventilation uh, and access point, which is just so fascinating because it's such a kind of nondescript building. Yeah. Um, we're talking with urban design critic John King about his new book, Portal, San Francisco's Ferry Building and the Reinvention of American Cities. What does the ferry building mean for you? Do you have questions about its construction or its history? The number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're here with San Francisco Chronicle urban design critic John King talking about his new book, Portal, which is all about the ferry building and what it says about how San Francisco and American cities can and have reinvented themselves. I want to bring in a uh, first caller. Let's bring in Hall in Sea Ranch. Welcome, Hall. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah, the ferry building was a, a big deal in my family. My father 
parents built a house in Belvedere in the early 20th century. And my dad was born in 1914, and he looked across the bay to San Francisco every day. He watched things like the bridges being built, but that ferry building was really special because that's how he would go visit his uh, family in San Francisco. He'd end up at the ferry building, um, taking a small ferry from, I believe, Sausalito. Anyway, he um, always loved that building, and he became a geologist, and um, he taught at Stanford when I was young, but in 1955, he got his dream job working for the state of California, and his office was in the ferry building. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a really big deal for our family. And we used to go visit him there sometimes when we would work, or mm. he would take me on a weekend. And uh, it, was just, it's, it was just fascinating. And when I heard the subject, I thought, oh, this is going to be a good show. <laughs> Get so the book. Really You're going to love it, Hall. Um, yeah, yeah. I, uh, it's particularly sweet because I have my family coming by the station, actually, later today. Um, there's something about going with your parents to their office, you know, these like special memories. Yeah, you know? and it, it's something because in the mid-'50s, the ferry building was not at its peak. It was pretty – had been redone, so your dad's offices probably weren't the most glamorous things around. <laughs> but still really, yeah. Oh, of course, but yeah. so atmospheric. Oh, That'd man. be thrilling. So let's let's talk about <clears throat> the evolution of the ferry building. It has this iconic status. It's on, you know, more postcards than, than any other building in the city. Um, and then the bridges open. These mm-hmm. massive, um, you know, Depression-era projects open San Francisco up to car and, and also transit traffic. Um, that don't require ferries. One of the things that I found really surprising in your book was it wasn't like people said, well, we'll keep the ferries going anyway as a sort of resilient strategy or to help you with traffic. It was sort of like, okay, the bridges are open, ferry, but ferries are done. Exactly. I found that so <laughs> interesting. It just doesn't seem like the way that we would do it now. It isn't the way we would do it now, but if you go back into the 30s, 40s, into the 50s, there was such an acceptance that the new is better than the old, Hmm. just unquestioned. And cars, we know everything wrong with them now. And, you know, they were killing people then, but it was convenience and it was freedom. You didn't have to wait on a schedule. You didn't have to do this. You didn't have to do that. And so San Francisco, which had built the – San Francisco built the ferry building in part to show it wasn't just some wild west town. But it was a real city. With the bridges and with the cars coming in, it's a way to say we're totally connected. We no longer have this quaint relic of the old days where you had to be on a ship or put your car on a ship. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of nuts to look at it, but that's that was the mentality then. So interesting. So the building then enters its period of sort of decline Um there is the, – the freeway story of San Francisco is complicated. Many people may know this because we, there were plans approved and, and thought about and then stopped, right? right? So that leads to what for the ferry building? The ferry building helped stop other freeways in San Francisco because the first big elevated freeway built in San Francisco was the Embarcadero Freeway which has been gone for 32 years. A lot of the listeners are not 32 years old, so (laughs) this is very ancient history. But the waterfront was severed from the rest of the city, and the ferry building 
was severed from the rest of the city. You could still see it. But now if you look down Market Street, you saw this ugly double-deck concrete viaduct mm. with this sad tower behind it. Mm. And that was so jarring to people and so upsetting to a lot of San Franciscans, that became fodder for every neighborhood trying to fight freeways being put through their neighborhood. Uh. And they could directly point to the Embarcadero and the ferry building as, look what happened there. We don't want that here. Oh, that's interesting. You know, John writes to say, you know, when I was a kid in the early 80s, the Embarcadero Freeway blocked the ferry building from the city. The building itself for the public was reduced to a dank tunnel through the structure to the ferries. It was romantically decayed. How did it get so bad before it was rescued? Nobody had any idea what to do with it. So right after World War II, there is the idea of we should tear down the ferry building and build a nine-block deck over the bay and build a World Trade Center. And the governors loved it. The mayor loved it. All these officials loved it. It was such a stupid idea. It never, the Chronicle blessed it. Uh, it never got the headway to go anywhere. But so you had this thing where the north half of the building was turned totally gutted and stripped and turned into a kind of feeble grade Z World Trade Center. <laughs> the south half just kind of languished. And then the port filled in various gaps and did its own gutting, but on a budget because it was a state agency, and put in port offices. Way up until the 90s, the ground floor of the southern half of the building was a parking garage for port maintenance vehicles. I mean, it was it, it just kind of decayed. And also, it was cut off. So it's, there is a bit of the out of sight, out of mind. That's part of the dying, decrepit, old industrial city so even there, there's there's this landmark you want to save. It never got any sort of genuine attention. You know, it is it is interesting, right? Because it's hard for people to remember there were pockets of working waterfront mm -hmm. left, right? I mean, not like what is in Oakland now, but there were pockets of longshore work that, that were a, a, along there. And so there was some sense, right, that this mm -hmm. was an industrial area, even though now, of course, it doesn't, it, there, right. it is not. Um. <clears throat> a subplot of the book is, you know, just watching the Embarcadero's journey. Hmm. And it, the Embarcadero was like a big industrial waterfront in every big American coastal city at the time, all these finger piers sticking out. Hmm. And then as shipping changed, the ships got bigger, they got deeper, they were carrying containers instead of break bulk cargo you'd just mm -hmm. toss out onto the Embarcadero. It kind of became superfluous. So there were still little niches. I mean, the Chronicle was having newsprint delivered from Canada into the late 90s, I think. Oh, wow. When I started at the Chronicle, it was still, there was a, uh, like Pier 27 where the cruise terminal is now, there was a newspaper, newsprint pier. Um, but it, it really just kind of fizzled away because it it so didn't work for modern life. Hmm. You know, I once talked to the um, architect, Kathy Simon, mm -hmm. who ended up doing some of the revitalization. She kind of thought that it was almost preserved precisely because it was sort of forgotten. Like if, if it was sort of tucked away behind the freeway. And so... There wasn't a big push to get rid of it because it was kind of, as you were saying, out of sight, out of mind. Mm -hmm. Like, was there actually something positive about it getting to sort of be forgotten through the main area of kind of quote unquote urban renewal? 
I think so. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by all the unbuilt visions for the waterfront that came and went, and that's that's a chunk of the middle section in the book. But I think you're right. It was so difficult to do it that it couldn't get done earlier and more drastically. For instance, in the late 50s, early 60s, very good, legitimate, thoughtful architects, designer types like Lawrence Halperin, mm-hmm. the landscape architect, they were proposing – the freeway went up. We still need to get people to the water. We need to show them the water matters. So we'll cut the wings off of the ferry building, leave the tower, cut the wings, build a big park there. Hmm. And it's a horrible idea. If it had gotten done, it would have been an – you couldn't heal that wound. But because it was out of sight, because it was kind of tucked away back there, it just never made sense practically. Hmm. And so Kathy's right. You had all these ideas come and go because they were too contorted and elaborate to work, so they would just fall by the wayside. Mm. So by the time the ferry building actually did get restored, there was a real clean sense of what was needed. Mm. We're talking with urban design critic John King about his new book, Portal, San Francisco's Ferry Building and the Reinvention of American Cities. I'd love to hear from you. Is there another building in the Bay Area that's begging for this kind of reinvention, like what's happened with the Ferry Building, an iconic building with with major potential. You can give us your pick. Or if you've got questions about the Ferry Building or want to tell us what it means to you, you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. I do want to talk about this freeway situation, the Embarcadero Freeway. Um, we, I think most people probably know that it was damaged, although maybe not irreparably, um, in the Loma Prieta earthquake. Um, but it was still popular at that point, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if it hadn't been for the earthquake, it's one of these, like, kind of great pivot points right. in this kind of San Francisco urban history. H- how do we know it was still popular? Like, did... In 1986, three years before the Loman Prieta earthquake, San Franciscan voters were asked, do you want to tear down the ferry building? Or do you want to tear down the ferry building and build a big new waterfront promenade? And voters rejected each one by like two-thirds margins. Just emphatically keep the Embarcadero Freeway. Oh, I think I said tear down the ferry building. Yeah, tear down the Embarcadero (laughs) Freeway. Tear down the Embarcadero Freeway. Um, Yeah, it was fascinating. It was just as much as, quote unquote, everybody hated it, it was an easy way to get to North Beach and the waterfront. I mean, my, my memory growing up in the Bay Area, the ferry building made less of an impression on me growing up in the East Bay than driving on the Embarcadero Freeway to go to clubs in North Beach. You know, it's just that's the way it was because it was cool. You're on the Embarcadero Freeway at night. You whip down onto Broadway. You come up on clay. Um, It it really was fascinating. But Diane Feinstein really pushed this. She was a true old San Franciscan. She wanted the freeway gone. She wanted to see the Embarcadero. And... It seemed like the election just killed off the idea once and for all. That's so interesting. Then the earthquake hits. Then mm-hmm. basically people say, oh, okay, now we'll take it down. <laughs> um, and then and then what happens? I mean, now you've got the ferry building back exposed to, mm-hmm. to public view. How long did it take to become the thing that sort of I encountered it as, you know, in right. the 2000s? It took about 14 years or so from the earthquake. Wow. 
I think part of it is the freeway had to come down. That was uh, 1991. And then it took a few years for people to start to get used to this and just seeing, okay, wow, the Embarcadero is open. The city was already trying to do various improvement plans in the Embarcadero. With the freeway gone, that made it much easier. And you started to have things happen along there. You started to have civic events down there. And there had been a brief moratorium on waterfront development while a waterfront plan was drawn up. And then you had real legitimate developers come in, whereas before it had been kind of questionable ones interested in the building. And one was selected, and it was a really good local team, Wilson Meany Sullivan, and they hired Kathy Simon, who had a design team with her firm, another firm, Page and Turnbull, VCV. Uh, so it just, you know, nothing connected to development in San Francisco moves swiftly, but it, it moved along kind of expeditiously, and then when it reopened, it felt right. It just felt preordained. Right. Precious, but preordained. Well, one of the um, most interesting aspects of the design, which people who've been to the Ferry Building, I think, will will recognize, is the retail spaces are not designed like a mall. Mm-hmm. They're designed like a European street or something. Right. That was kind of like a like a... A, a reimagining of the interior of that building to be like a European retail zone. Yes, definitely. The the developer took a, several of the architects talk talk about tough work. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> to Europe, and they went to all these markets, and they said, "Wow, this is cool." Um, but it's all, and it's fascinating because it's all a work of fiction. I mean, the ground floor was baggage storage area. It was a post office. It was the ticket counters. Uh, you know, one or two small waiting rooms, but the action was all upstairs. And it they created this space that feels right and it doesn't feel like a mall. Earlier redevelopment proposals, you look at the renderings, it's any mall USA. Huh. Like glassed in retail. Yes, of. with bulbed out storefronts and things like that. And one plan, you know, was cutting diagonal escalators through it at various points. Huh. Hmm. What That's could have been? So interesting. We have um, some other appreciations here for the Ferry Building. Uh, one listener writes, I'm a Gen Z kid, and even though I've seen the pictures, I genuinely can't imagine a freeway running in front <laughs> of the Ferry Building. It just ruins the whole vibe. The Ferry Building is my favorite spot in the city. Beautiful views, tasty food, fresh bread, a bookstore. I always try to take people who are visiting me there to see the Saturday Farmer's Market and then walk the waterfront to Pier 39. I mean, that is one of the great outings, right? Oh, in, absolutely. In the whole Bay Area. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, another one here. Um, the State Division of Mines and Geology is coming up a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Laura writes, my father worked in the Ferry Building, State Division of Mines and Geology, from 1956 to 1983. He loved working there and ate his bag lunch out on the pier. As division head, he went toe-to-toe with Governor Reagan's administration when they wanted to close the San Francisco office. Um, I love that. Well, um, thank you, Laura, for that. I also, you know, one of the things I I think is interesting, people know about the Ferry Building that it is, you know, it's an upscale place. Like the places inside, not every one of them, but as a Mm -hmm. whole, it's sort of the... um, The elite of San Francisco's food world and, and, and yet... You know, she talks about her father there eating a sandwich, mm-hmm. you know, out on the pier. You can go there 
and you'll see kind of everyone doing. You'll see everyone there. You'll see people out there with bag lunches out on the uh, uh, out on the the back deck there. And it does feel like somehow, even though the retail commercial idea of it is upscale, it has retained its role as a place for everyone. I think that's really true, and it. It's interesting, like one of the best places in the building is that walkway in the back Mm -hmm. along the water. That didn't exist until 2003. That's where the ferry gates were. The back of the ferry building, you know, it was like an airplane terminal. Uh The ferries pulled right in. You stepped out of that. You walked into the building. You know, those, those slips, I think there were six of them. They all broke down or burned or disappeared over time. So this is the first time, it's only in the last 20 years, been able to do that. And then a lot of the stuff is precious. A lot of it's a little bougie. But you can grab a reasonable sandwich. You can bring a bag lunch from work. And then you sit on a real simple bitch and you're just looking at the water and watching the pelicans fly past and all. And uh, super quick to wrap it up. I mean, what's striking to me is after 20 years, it hasn't turned into a tourist trap. Uh-huh. And it has managed to kind of figure out how to keep strands out to other segments of the public rather than the I'm going to Hog Island oyster yeah. crowd. Yeah. I Yeah, I do. I find it totally fascinating. I also found as I was, you know, prepping for the show, I was looking up all the photos and videos that I've taken of the ferry building or from the ferry building over the years. And what's amazing is how often I've returned to like the same things. This, it, it, it's beautiful. Um, it, it's just beautiful in ways that are difficult to, um, they, they don't change necessarily. It's the view of the bay remains beautiful. It stays beautiful. And it's, um, it's something that I just, I, uh, yeah, I, I, that was the worst description I've ever given the ferry <laughs> building. But uh, but there you go. That's how much I love it. Uh, we're talking with urban design critic John King about his new book, Portal, San Francisco's Ferry Building and the Reinvention of American Cities. Going to get to more of your calls and more uh, of your comments after the break. Uh, you can probably be more articulate about the beauty of the building uh, than I have been. The number is 866-733-6786. Forum at kqed.org is the email address. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with San Francisco Chronicle urban design critic John King about his new book, Portal, San Francisco's Ferry Building and the Reinvention of American Cities. 
Um, we. This is a fun story. Michael writes, I worked on a small budget movie filmed at the Ferry Building in the late 90s. Late one night, I got to go up the clock tower, stop the <laughs> clock since we shot a scene for an hour or so, and then reset it afterwards. Wow. Oh, man, I'm jealous. <laughs> That's great. Um, let's bring in uh, Toro in Richmond. Welcome. Hi. Um, yeah, I love the show, and I love the ferry building. Uh, I live in the East Bay, and um, I wanted to say that Oakland Tribune building mm. um, is another icon that very much represents Oakland, and I would love to see that whole area revitalized. And I think by starting with the ferry building, we could maybe have that happen. Oh, that's interesting. Hey, thank you for that, um, Toro. Um, I also love the Tribune building. Mm -hmm. It is very beautiful. I mean, one of the things that makes it very different, though, is it's just kind of plopped in the center of kind of like the downtown Oakland district, right? Versus the iconic location of the ferry building. That's really true. I think think every city, every big city has its buildings that have the kind of place the ferry building does where you can look and read the city through the building. Mm. But one of the things that sets the ferry building apart is it will always be so distinct. I love the Tribune Tower, but, you know, there are these residential buildings going up nearby. Mm -hmm. It's like you have to kind of know where it is. And that's the same. I go to Lower Manhattan now and look for the Woolworth Building. You have Mm. to kind of know where you're looking to see Mm. it past all the other big buildings. And that's that that will never happen to the ferry building. Yeah. Although I do, I I do still love the the Tribune building. Thanks for that call, Toro. Um, you know, here's I know this is one of your specialties, kind of the the ghost plans of the of the city. These things that were were went unbuilt. Stephen writes in. I commuted on the Larkspur Ferry for nine years in the 90s. I thought a big opportunity was missed when the Embarcadero Freeway was torn down. One of the proposals was to create a large, unbroken plaza connecting the building to Market Street by undergrounding the roadway in front. Sadly, that was not done. It could have been one of the great urban plazas Mm -hmm. of the world. What do you think? I think he's right. I mean, it's tricky to do urban plazas, but it would make a lot more sense if the roadway went under. And Mayor Art Agnos, the mayor who Hmm. did get the building down, uh, he really wanted to do that. And it's tricky because there actually was an under ramp on the Embarcadero from the mid-20s into the 50s, I guess, when the freeway was built. But then there wasn't BART below that. You, You get the BART and Muni subway tunnels. That gets real complicated. But it's kind of – it would have taken a lot of time to figure out if it could have worked. It would have taken a lot more money. And the city had a ticking clock in terms of deciding whether or not to take down the freeway. And so it didn't, obviously. You know, in an interesting way, too, I think not having the full connection to the city, having that break of Embarcadero kind of makes the waterfront a little more distinct. Like it keeps – the ferry building connected to the waterfront that's as opposed to into the downtown? In a different, I don't know. No, no, that's actually a good point because you've got the kind of teardrop-shaped plaza in the middle, which is not one of the great urban plazas of the world. <laughs> uh, but you're right. There is that kind of f- physical segregation. So there is that waterfront promenade that works so well. Yeah, and that just, yeah, it... it turns your attention in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, Lisa wants to talk a little bit more about the freeway. Welcome, Lisa. Hi. Oh, thank you. Hi. 
excuse me, Kellan, I'm probably your peer. I um, have been reading you for years and years and years. Very, very interested in your critiques. Um, I moved to San Francisco in 81. I'm here. I raised a family. I've had businesses and all sorts of things. But I'm so um, agreeing with you on the concept of um, or, or the remembrance of using the freeway to get to the North Beach clubs in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And I probably voted against taking down <laughs> the, that freeway in 1986 because back then we were young and foolishly car happy. And if you recall, that drive at night in particular was absolutely gorgeous of the bay, of the bridge, of the ferry building. It was a beautiful drive. And so I think that led a lot to our reluctances. And I'm, I was so happy to see it come down consequently. If we were lucky right, that it right. did it, and it's interesting, you know, you're talking about being young and having better things to do than watch a freeway get torn down. Also opposing tearing down the freeway was Herb Cain, Mr. San Francisco, who had always written about the damn Barcadero Freeway. <laughs> but people were so pessimistic about the future of the city at the time that it was too much growth, it was too this, it was too that, that it's like anything we do will just make it worse, so better just leave it as it is. Um, hey, Lisa, where did you go? In North Beach clubs. I want to know the North Beach club scene. Oh, my God. I don't remember the name. There was a place. Oh, my God. Maybe, John, you remember. I remember Boz Gag used to hang out there. The guy, the lead singer from the Tubes. We would we would hang out with the lead singer from the Tubes and Boz Gag. It was <laughs> well, on a corner where the alley is. Was it Union? There, no, there was, was, a, there was the Keystone. There was the old Waldorf. Yeah. A few others yeah, mixed yeah. in up there. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. so fun. Yeah. Um, Lisa, thanks for that. <laughs> yeah. I, lo- I love those memories, though. Those are so, so, it's just, it feels like a really different city, you know? And maybe Including all the street parking and you didn't think about, the- no, it's like you drive in from Berkeley after school, you go to do things, you just grab a parking yeah. space on the street, you go to a cheap Italian restaurant in Columbus. Oh, man. Yeah. I, um... I want let's talk a little bit about the this reinvention uh, theme that you have going in the book. There is there are still new problems for the ferry building, right? It hasn't been solved. It it seemed to survive um, COVID and mm-hmm. the kind of emptiness of many other urban right. spaces. It came through okay. It seems like from the book, but there is the fact that it is a waterfront building in an era when we know sea level rise is going to happen. This is kind of the final right. movement of the book, right? And that's a huge challenge. And it again, it faces every big American waterfront city because so many cities did variations of San Francisco. If you, you know, your old working waterfront's dead, you turn it into this lifestyle zone where you can promenade, you can do this and that. And it's all susceptible to sea level rise in extreme mm. weather. Mm. And in the case of the in the case of California and the ferry building and the bay, the projections, kind of the credible projections, you know, leaving out the it's fake and mm-hmm. leaving out the more what if extremities, is that big storms, you know, toward the end of the century would go over the Embarcadero with such force they'd go down into the tunnels underneath Powell, underneath mm, like the uh, Bart and Muni tunnels. Exactly, because there's the opening approaching Mission Street. Mm-hmm. And then the ferry building itself is very exposed. Even now with king tides, you've got low points on the Embarcadero north and south of the ferry building where water laps up. I mean, Hmm. it's more fun than 
horrifying. Yeah. Um, and hmm. it, it's a it's a definite concern. So it becomes, you know, I did a piece about Foster City's new improved raised levy. And so at one extreme, you just build a big wall mm-hmm. and then you put some plants on it and call it a day. But that's not what the Embarcadero has become. And with the ferry building, there are are studies going on on can we lift the whole thing up? Hmm. And if we can do it structurally, can we do it in any sort of way that doesn't cripple all the businesses in it? Hmm. And, you know, in parentheses, and unwind the ports. You can, you know, the port gets money from the ferry right. building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. How I mean, how soon are we talking? We'd have to make these kinds of difficult decisions. Like you also uh, write in the book about Treasure Island mm-hmm. and this kind of you know they have a different situation facing west into the city. They were able to bring in this park, which acts both as like a beautiful public space, but also a kind of buffer right, for sea level. Right. So, are we talking like we need to start jacking up the ferry building in the next five years, in the next 10 years? Or are we talking like, all right, by 2050, we need to have done something, you know. They're ordering the helium balloons right now yeah, to right, tie yeah, the building exactly. and just hope they lift yeah, them up. Right. No, I mean, I think realistically, that scale of problems is probably 20 years from now. You take a deep breath and say, look, we can't put it off any longer. Mm. The Port of San Francisco has been looking at this stuff. I've written far too many pieces trying to make hydrological studies and projections, you know, comprehensive or coherent. But um, they've been doing all this. They're now working with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Theoretically, in the next two or three months, there's an initial plan on the idea. But a lot of it is we can do short-term things for the next 30 years or 40 years. And then if all the projections are proving to be correct— then we have to really make the big decisions. So just super quick, you take the stretch of the Embarcadero south of the ferry building. Mm-hmm. You know, looking ahead the next 30, 40 years, well, you could just take that nice little open walkway. You could put um, fiberglass panels up and anchor them on top of what's there now, and you're kind of buying that extra space in really big storms. Mm-hmm. 50 years from now, that type of thing wouldn't be enough, mm-hmm. and that's... Mm-hmm. Theoretically, we get to the point where people are willing to make the big, dramatic decisions on how do we pull this thing off so it actually is still a good place to live. Hmm. Um, you're going to love this call, John. Tony in San Francisco, welcome. Hey, hey, good morning. How are you? Hey, doing well, doing well. So my story is uh, in, in the early 2000s when the ferry building was being remodeled, I'm a member of Local 38 Plumber. I was the foreman for seven of the build-outs on the first floor, and my buddy and I were in the process of doing some plumbing under the ferry building in a little boat, 12-foot boat, a little motor, gas motor, and it was about 8 o'clock in the morning, and one guy's working, and one guy's kind of holding the boat steady and looking out for anything that might come. And sure enough, we got swamped by two very large waves, and in the process of working under the ferry building, our boat was actually sunk. Oh, my God. Over, you know, under our feet. And um, it's just a great story because every time I'm in the ferry building with people, I tell them that I was working at the time. It was called Ferry Plaza Seat Booth was the, the build that we were working on. And every year, my company, that company Christmas party, my boss, makes me tell the story about <laughs> how my buddy Chris and I 
while working on the, uh, the ferry building in a little boat. <laughs> Tony, I, I wrote about things that in the book. Yeah. We don't think about that. All those buildings had to have drilling put down through that catacomb-like arch system. Yeah. And I, I had the chance to go under, and I never— You never went? A, oh, I would go. My I claustrophobia would. kicked yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Hey, Tony, um, thanks so much. Shout out Local 38. Uh, appreciate it. Um, let's—wow, um, so so interesting. Let's uh, bring in uh, Rochelle in Kensington. Hey, Rochelle. Hi. Thank you. Hi. Thank you so much for this morning's topic. Uh, back. Just a, one of the best memories ever. My dad was an architect working in Sausalito and um, got a job, I guess, re- the, your author would know more about this, but helping redo some of the ferry um, sites proper, like the Larkspur Ferry, the San Francisco area when they were redoing the the place where the ferry actually came in and they were celebrating this in 1976 and at that time I think I was eight my brother might have been seven and it was a big to do Uh, George Moscone was there Mm. and this is you know before the internet and everything so we were so proud of my dad and all the work that he'd done on the different ferry accesses and um at that point, all the TV stations were down there, Channel 2, Channel 4, Channel uh, 5. Yeah. And at that time, my brother and I made a point of getting in every single camera shot so no one could be interviewed without little tiny, you know, seven- and eight-year-old heads popping up behind them because we waited that night and we saw ourselves on every <laughs> channel. And uh, you know, like anyway, so a I different time, that. a different time. Now, you know, now yeah. you'd be posting on your Instagram right. of you doing that. Um, Rochelle, thanks, uh, thanks so much. There's, um, I'm gonna just read you a few more mm-hmm. of these uh, memories and appreciations, John. One listener writes At the beginning of the interweb boom, office space was hard to come by. I moved from LA to join a startup here in San Francisco. The cheapest place we could rent was a corner office on the second floor in the ferry building with no ceilings, cables hanging down, holes in the wall. It was magical. Another listener writes, Great credit should go to Mayor Art Agnos, who led the city through the Loma Prieta earthquake and championed the removal of the Embarcadero Freeway. The vote on the Board of Supervisors to remove the freeway was only 6-5. I think you have it different in your book. But Mayor Agnos paid a big political price, but he made a great contribution to the city by his actions. And Herb writes... In the 80s, there was a bicycle ride fundraiser for the youth hostels. They closed the Embarcadero Freeway so bikes could ride on it. I rented one of the three-world bicycle taxis and pedaled my dad and me for the tour. It was great to see the ferry building from the top of the freeway. Our picture was in the hostel office for years. Um, It must be fun to have written a book that brings out so many different types of memories for people from all different times, from all different kind of vantage points. It was fun. And one thing I found is everybody... I talked to in doing research for this, they wanted to talk about it. Everyone who took part in it in any form is so proud of that. Mm-hmm. Everybody has real positive feelings. You know, I talked to the people at Foodwise, the farmer's market. They care so intensely from one perspective. You talk to the historic preservationists. You talk to the users. You talk... And the book has, you know, talking to skateboarders mm. and, and not the ferry building specifically, but the central Embarcadero to them is iconic. And it's a different kind of icon. Uh-huh. But there are so many layers of affection and experience in that part of the city 
that it kind of made some of the grudge work of doing a book, just <laughs> drudge work of doing a book yeah. a lot better. You know, in a funny way, it's almost like you could measure the value of a place in the city by the variety of values that people have gotten out of it. That's a good point. Right? Yes. It's almost like it's not just one thing to one type of person. It's many things to many types of people. And I think that's what makes the ferry building so beautiful. Um, uh, last comment. Daniel writes, uh, we used to use the Embarcadero and eventually the buildings that became the Levi Plaza as our personal playground. There was nothing better than having it all to ourselves. My fear for the Embarcadero is the Miamiization of the Embarcadero. And it is coming. There will be big apartments and condos on the water. John King's not sure he agrees, Daniel, but uh, uh, good to uh, good to be aware of the possible problems. We've been talking with urban design critic John King about his fabulous new book, Portal, San Francisco's Ferry Building and the Reinvention of American Cities, one of the most elegant books written about San Francisco. Thanks so much for joining oh, us, John. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. To our listeners, um, thanks for your calls, your comments, your questions. We have some replays coming up this week as we move into the holiday. And here at Forum, we are giving thanks to all of you for joining our community, being with us. The 9 o'clock hour of Forum is produced by Blanca Torres, Grace Wan, and Dan Zoll. Our interns are Jericho Reininger and Emiko Oda. Marlena Jackson Rotondo is our engagement producer. Francesca Fenzi is our digital community producer. Judy Campbell is lead producer. Danny Bringer is our engineer. Our vice president of news is Ethan Toven Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. One last appreciation to uh, share with you. Noel writes, after the Embarcadero Freeway was taken down after the 1989 earthquake, the ferry building regained its prominence. Then Embarcadero was open for people to stroll on. Then the Exploratorium relocated to the area. The view of the bay from the ferry building is stunning and a must-see. I hope everybody's going to take advantage of this beautiful fall weather as we uh, as we head into uh, this next week. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with guest host Leslie McClurg. And if you need to add some fixings to that Thanksgiving table, you can hit the ferry building. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.